Aboriginal creation myths tell of the legendary totemic beings who had wandered over the continent in the dream time, singing out the name of everything that crossed their path. Birds, animals, plants, rocks, waterholes, and so singing the world into existence. Arkady was so struck by the beauty of this concept that he began to take note of everything he saw or heard, not for publication, but to satisfy his own curiosity. At first, the Walbury elders had mistrusted him, and their answers to his questions were evasive. With time, once he had won their confidence, they invited him to witness their most secret ceremonies and encouraged him to learn their songs. I think I'll just uh, start in because the first chapter is sort of self-explanatory. In Alice Springs, a grid of scorching streets where men in long white socks were forever getting in and out of land cruisers, I met a Russian who was mapping the sacred sites of the aboriginals. His name was Arkady Volchok. He was an Australian citizen. 
he was 33 years old. His father, Ivan Volchok, was a Cossack from a village near Rostov-on-Don, who, in 1942, was arrested and sent with a trainload of other Ostarbeiter to work in a German factory. One night, somewhere in the Ukraine, he jumped from the cattle car into a field of sunflowers. Soldiers in grey uniforms hunted him up and down the long lines of sunflowers, but he gave them the slip. Somewhere else, lost between murdering armies, he met a girl from Kiev and married her. Together, they drifted to a forgetful Adelaide suburb where he'd rigged up a vodka still and fathered three sturdy sons. The youngest of these was Arkady. Nothing in Arkady's temperament predisposed him to live in the huggermugger of Anglo-Saxon suburbia or take a conventional job. He had a flattish face and a gentle smile, and he moved through the bright Australian spaces with the ease of his footloose forebears. His hair was thick and straight, the colour of straw. His lips had cracked in the heat. He did not have the drawn-in lips of so many white Australians in the outback, nor did he swallow his words. He rolled his R's in a very Russian way. Only when you came up close did you realise how big his bones were. He had married, he told me, and had a daughter of six, yet preferring solitude to domestic chaos, he no longer lived with his wife. He had few possessions apart from a harpsichord and a shelf of books. He was a tireless bushwalker. He thought nothing of setting out with a water flask and a few bites of food for a hundred-mile walk along the ranges. Then he would come home, out of the heat and light, and draw the curtains and play the music of Buxtehude and Bach on the harpsichord. Their orderly progressions, he said, conformed to the contours of the Central Australian landscape. Neither of Arkady's parents had ever read a book in English. He delighted them by winning a first-class honours degree in history and philosophy at Adelaide University. He made them sad when he went to work as a schoolteacher on an Aboriginal settlement in Walbury country to the north of Alice Springs. He liked the Aboriginals. He liked their grit and tenacity and their artful ways of dealing with the white man. He had learned or half-learned a couple of their languages and had come away astonished by their intellectual vigour, their feats of memory and their capacity and will to survive. They were not, he insisted, a dying race, although they did need help now and then to get the government and mining companies off their backs. It was during his time as a schoolteacher that Arkady learned of the labyrinth of invisible pathways which meander all over Australia and are known to Europeans as dreaming tracks or song lines to the Aboriginals as the footprints of the ancestors or way of the law. Aboriginal creation myths tell of the legendary totemic beings who had wandered over the continent in the dream time, singing out the name of everything that crossed their path. Birds, animals, plants, rocks, waterholes, and so singing the world into existence. Arkady was so struck by the beauty of this concept that he began to take note of everything he saw or heard, not for publication, but to satisfy his own curiosity. At first, the Walbury elders had mistrusted him, and their answers to his questions were evasive. With time, once he had won their confidence, they invited him to witness their most secret ceremonies and encouraged him to learn their songs. One year, an anthropologist from Canberra came to study Walbury's systems of land tenure. An envious academic who resented Arkady's friendship with the songmen pumped him for information and promptly betrayed a secret he had promised to keep. Disgusted by the row that followed, the Russian threw in his job and went abroad. He saw the Buddhist temples of Java, sat with sadhus on the ghats of Benares, smoked hashish in Kabul, and worked on a kibbutz. 
On the Acropolis in Athens, there was a dusting of snow and only one other tourist, a Greek girl from Sydney. They travelled through Italy and slept together, and in Paris they agreed to get married. Having been brought up in a country where there was nothing, Arkady had longed all his life to see the monuments of Western civilization. He was in love, it was springtime, Europe should have been wonderful, it left, me to, left him to his disappointment feeling flat. Often in Australia, he had had to defend the Aboriginals from people who dismissed them as drunken and incompetent savages. Yet there were times in the fly-blown squalor of a Walbury camp when he suspected they might be right and that his vocation to help the blacks was either willful self-indulgence or a waste of time. Now, in a Europe of mindless materialism, his old men seemed wiser and more thoughtful than ever. He went to a Qantas office and bought two tickets home. He was married six weeks later in Sydney and took his wife to live in Alice Springs. She said she longed to live in the centre. She said she loved it when she got there. After a single summer, in a tin-roofed house that heated like a furnace, they began to drift apart. The Land Rights Act gave Aboriginal owners the title to their country, providing it lay untenanted, and the job that Arkady then invented for himself was to interpret tribal law into the law, into the language of the Crown. I beg your pardon, into the language of the law of the crown. No one knew better that the idyllic days of hunting and gathering were over, if indeed they were ever that idyllic. What could be done for the aboriginals was to preserve their most essential liberty, the liberty to remain poor, or, as he phrased it more tactfully, the space to be poor in, the space in which to be poor if they wished to be poor. Now that he lived alone, he liked to spend most of his time out bush, when he did come to town, he worked from a disused newspaper shop floor where rolls of old newsprint still clogged the presses and his sequence of aerial photos had spread like a game of dominoes over the shabby white walls. One sequence showed a 300 strip of country running roughly due north. This was the suggested route of the new Alice to Darwin Railway. The line, he told me, was going to be the last long stretch of track to be laid in Australia and its chief engineer, a railwayman of the old school, had announced that it must also be the best. The engineer was close to retiring age and concerned for his posthumous res uh, reputation. He was especially concerned to avoid the kind of rumpus that broke out whenever a mining company moved its machinery into Aboriginal land. So promising not to destroy a single one of their sacred sites, he had asked their representatives to supply him with a survey. Arkady's job was to identify the traditional landowners, to drive them over their old hunting grounds, even if these now belong to a cattle company, and to get them to reveal which rock or soak or ghost gum was the work of a dreamtime hero. He had already mapped the 150-mile stretch from Alice to Middlebore Station. He had 150 to go. I warned the engineer he was being a bit rash, he said, but that was the way he wanted it. Why rash, I asked. Well, if you look at it their way, he grinned, the whole of bloody Australia is a sacred site. Explain, I said. He was on the point of explaining when an Aboriginal girl came in with a stack of papers. She was a secretary, a pliant brown girl in a brown knitted dress. She smiled and said, hi, Ark, but her smile fell away at the sight of a stranger. Arkady lowered his voice. He had warned me earlier how Aboriginals hate to hear white men discussing their business. This is a pom, he said to the secretary, a pom by the name of Bruce. The girl giggled diffidently, dumped the papers on the desk, and dashed for the door. Let's go and get a coffee, he said. So we went to a co coffee shop on Todd Street. Uh, Arkady and I then go on an expedition to 
the country north of Alice Springs to take the old men to see what they, whether or not the railway line was going to cut into their songs. Uh, on the way, we, he tells me about the uh, way in which certain Aboriginal groups had to go through the nuclear fallout. Um, and I indeed met an old man called, well, not so old, uh, called Yummy Lester in Alice Springs, who actually described what it is like to have, the, to have a, a nuclear fallout cloud coming towards you when his family were out hunting. And uh, we are also going to call on a man called Hanlon, who is an old bushy um, living alone in a tin house. We forked right at the sign for Middle Bore and headed east along a dusty road that ran parallel to a rocky escarpment. The road rose and fell through a thicket of grey-leaved bushes and there were pale hawks perching on fence posts. I beg your pardon. Start with the wrong chapter. Help. One second. Starts off looking the same. Big one. And I <laughs> repetitions, unconscious. An hour or so later, we passed the Glen Armand pub, turned left off the tarmac, bumped along a dirt track, and stopped by a disused stockyard. Nearby, behind a screen of tamarisks, there was an old, unpainted tin bungalow, grey going over into rust, with a brick chimney standing up the middle. This was Hanlon's house. In the yard out front, there were a stack of empty oil drums and another stack of ex-army surplus. At the back, under a squeaky wind pump, there was a dead Chevrolet with silver grass growing up through it. A faded poster, pasted to the front door, read, Workers of the World Unite. The door scraped open six inches, Hanlon was standing behind it. What's the matter with you, he crackled. Never seen a man naked before. Come on in, boys. For a man in his seventies, Hanlon looked in good shape. He was skinny and taut-muscled, with a short, flat head and a craning neck. His hair was crew-cropped and white, and he would pat down the bristles with his hand. He had a broken nose, wore steel-framed spectacles, and spoke in a loud nasal voice. We sat and he stood. He stared earnestly at his privates, scratched his crotch, and bragged about a lady pharmacist he'd tucked in Tennant Creek. Not bad for 73, he looked down at himself. Serviceable knackers, reasonable set of teeth. What more would an old man need? Nothing, said Arkady. You're right, Hanlon smirked. He tied a towel round his tummy and got out three bottles of beer. I noticed that his right hand was withered. It was baking hot inside the house. The heat pressed down from the roof and our shirts were soaked with sweat. The outer room was an L-shaped corridor with an old enamel bath up one end. Then came the kitchen, then a group of table and chairs. He showed us the clippings on his walls. A, a strike in Kalgoorlie, Lenin's skull, Uncle Joe's moustache and pin-ups from Playboy. He had settled here 30 years back with a woman who had left him. He had sold off the land and now lived on welfare. On the table there was a scarlet oilcloth and a tabby cat licking off the plate. Get your bastard, he raised his fist and the cat flew off. So what are you boys up to? Going up to Kaitich country, Arkady answered, with Alan Nakamura's mob. Survey, eh? Yes. Sacred sites, eh? Yes. Sacred bloody baloney, what those boys need is organisation. 
He flipped off the beer caps, then blew his nose into his hand and smeared the snot carefully on the underside of his chair. He caught me looking at him. He looked at me. Ask him, he pointed. He, he reminisced about his days at Kalgoorlie as a paid-up party member before the Second World War. Ask him, he pointed at Arkady. Ask the boy for my curriculum vitae. He then potted off into the inside room where his bed was, and after rummaging about among old newspapers, found a book with a dull red buckram binding. He sat down again, adjusted his spectacles, and flattened his spine against the chair back. And now, he announced, pretending to open the book at random, now we will read the gospel according to our father Marx, forgiven old man's blasphemies, for today, what the fuck is today? Thursday, thought so, the date is immaterial, page 256, and what do we have? What, then, constitutes the alienation of labour? First, the fact that labour is external to the worker, i.e., it does not belong to his essential being, that in his work he does not affirm himself but denies himself, does not feel content but unhappy, does not develop his physical and mental energy but mortifies his body and ruins his mind. Nothing like a few lines of marks before food he beamed for bracing the intellect and strengthening the digestion. Have you boys eaten? We have, said Arkady. Well, you're eating here with me. Now, honestly, we can't. You bloody can. We'd be late. Late? What's late and what's early? An important philosophical question. We'd be late for a lady called Marion. Not a philosophical question, Hanlon said. Who the hell's Marion? Old friend of mine, Arkady said. Works for the land council. She's gone to fetch the Kaitich women. We're meeting her at Middlebore. Marion made Marion, Hanlon smacked his lips. Descending to Middlebore with a train of fair damsels. I tell you, they can wait. Get, get, go and get the stakes, boy. Only if it's quick, Jim, Arkady relented. We've got an hour and that's it. Give me, give me one hour, one hour with you. <laughs> Hanlon still possessed the relics of a passable baritone. He looked at me. Don't you look at me like that. I've sung in choirs. <laughs> Arkady went out to fetch the stakes from the car. So you're a writer, eh? Hanlon said to me, of sorts. Ever do an honest day's work in your life? <laughs> his blue eyes were watering. His eyeballs were suspended in nets of red wire. Try to, I said. The withered hand shot forward. It was purplish and waxy. The little finger was off. He held the hand to my face like a claw. Now what this is, he taunted. A hand. A working man's hand. I've done farm work, I said. And timber work. Timber? Where? Scotland. What kind of timber? Spruce? Larch? Very convincing. What kind of saw? Power saw. What make you fool? Can't remember. Very unconvincing, he said. Doesn't sound right to me. Arkady pushed through the door with the stakes. There were drops of blood on the white plastic bag. Hanlon took the bag, opened it, and inhaled. Ah, that's better, he grinned. Nice red meat for a change. He got up, lit the gas ring, poured fat from an old paint can, and laid out three steaks in the skillet. Here, you, he called to me. You come and talk to the cook. The fat began to splutter, and he took a spatula to stop the meat from sticking. So you're writing a book. Hmm? Trying to, I said. Why don't you write your book right here? You and me could have uplifting conversations. <laughs> we could, I said hesitantly. Ark, Hanlon called. 
Watch these stakes a minute, will you, boy? I'm going to show the bookie his billet. Here, you come here with me. He dropped the towel to the floor, pulled on a pair of shorts and slipped his feet into thongs. I followed him into the sunlight. The wind had freshened and was kicking up clouds of red dust along the track. We went through the tamarisks to a creaking gum tree with a caravan underneath it. He opened the door. There was the smell of something dead. The windows were wrapped in spider's webs. The bedding was stained and torn. Someone had smelled tomato sauce over the tabletop and the ants were swarming over it. Nice little hidey-hole, Hanlon said cheerfully. Reasonable rent. And you can oil the tree if the creaking gets you down. Very nice, I said. But not quite nice enough, eh? I didn't say that, but meant it, he hissed. Of course, we could fumigate the place. Might fumigate you in the process. He banged the door to and stalked off back to the house. I hung about the yard for a while, and when I went in, the steaks were done. Hanlon had fried six eggs and was ready to serve. Serve his lordship first, he said to Arkady. He cut three hunks of bread and set a sauce bottle on the table. I waited for him to sit down. It was unbearably hot. I looked at the steak and at the egg yolks. Hanlon looked at me for what seemed a full minute and said, Get your fucking fangs into that steak. <laughs> we, we ate without speaking. Hanlon steadied his steak with his withered hand and cut it into cubes with the good one. His knife had a serrated blade and a pair of curled-up prongs on the end of it. Who the hell does he think he is? He turned to Arkady. Who asked him to poke his upper snotty glass nose in here? You did, said Arkady. Did I? Well, I made a mistake. I'm not upper class, I said, but a touch too classy for my little luncheon party. Luncheon. That's what they call it in Pongleterre. Luncheon with the Queen. What? <laughs> Cut it out, Jim, Arkady said. He was very embarrassed. None of it meant personally, said Hanlon. That's something, I said. It is, he agreed. Tell him about Maralinga, said Arkady, in an effort to turn the conversation. Tell him about the cloud, the uh, nuclear cloud. Hanlon raised his good hand and clicked his fingers like castanets. The cloud. Aye, aye, sir. The cloud. Her Majesty's cloud. Sir Anthony stuck up in Eden's cloud. Poor Sir Anthony wanted his cloud so badly so he could say to the Ruski in Geneva, look, old boy, we also have the cloud. Forgetting, of course, that there are such things as variables in climate, even in Australia. Forgetting the wind might be blowing in the wrong direction. So he calls up Bob Menzies and says, Bob, I want my cloud now, today. But the wind, says Sir Bob, don't you give me wind, says Sir Anthony. I said, now. So they let off the device. Oh, I love that word, device. And the cloud, instead of sailing out to sea to contaminate the fishes, sailed inland to contaminate us, where they lost it. Lost the bugger over Queensland. Also, Sir Anthony could have a nice cosy cloud talk with Comrade Nikita. Yes, comrade, it's true. We do too have the cloud. Not that my men over there didn't lose it for a while. Vaporised a few abos on the way. That's enough, said Arkady firmly. Hanlon hung his head. Oh, shit, he said. And then prodded another steak cube and put it in his mouth. No one spoke until Hanlon burped and said, Big pardon. He pushed his plate away. Can't eat the bugger, he said. His face had turned putty-coloured. His hand was shaky. Anything the matter, said Arthur Arkady. 
I've got a guttock, you should go to a doctor. I've been to a doctor, um, they want to cut me up, Ark. I'm sorry, I said. I won't let them cut me, that, that's right, isn't it? No, said Arkady, maybe you should go. Well, maybe I will, he sniffed miserably. At the end of another five minutes, Arkady got up and laid his arm protectively around the old man's shoulders. Jim, he said in a soft voice, I'm sorry, I'm afraid we've got to go. Can we take you anywhere? No, he said, I'll stay. We made a move to go. Stay a bit longer, Hanlon said. No, really, we have to go. I wish you boys would stay a bit longer. We could have a good time. Well, come again, I said. Will you? Hanlon held his breath. When? A couple of days, said Arkady. We'll be done by then. Then we're heading out to Cullen. Sorry I flew at you, he said. His lip was quivering. Always fly at palms. No worries, I said. It was hotter than ever outside, and the wind was dying. In the front paddock, a wedge-tailed eagle was skimming down the line of the fence post. It was a lovely, gleaming, bronze-feathered bird, and it sheer away when it saw us. I tried to shake Hanlon's hand. He was holding it over his abdomen. We got into the land cruiser. You might have said thank you for the stakes, he called out after us. He was trying to resume his abrasive manner, but he looked scared. His cheeks were wet with tears. He turned his back. He could not bear to watch us going. How are you? Well, uh, at some stage we uh, we uh, meet a policeman, and then we'll meet him again in another chapter. At the Burnt Flat Hotel, where we stopped for a tank of gasoline, a police patrolman was at taking affidavits about a man found dead on the road. The victim, he told us, had been white, in his twenties, and a derelict. Motorists had been sighting him on and off the, along the highway for the past three days. And he's a right mess now. We had to scrape him off the bitumen with a shovel. Truck him mistook him for a dead roux. The accident had happened at five in the morning, but the body, what was left of it by the road train, had been cold for about six hours. Looks like somebody dumped him, said the policeman. He was being most officiously polite. His Adam's apple worked up and down the V of his khaki shirt. It was his duty. We would understand that to ask a few questions. Run over a coon in Alice Springs and no one would give it a thought. But a white man... So where were you boys at 11 last night? The Alice, said Arkady in a flat voice. Thank you very much. The officer touched his hat brim. No need to trouble you further. We then meet uh, the policeman a little later on. In the pub. And we have had news that uh, Hanlon has been taken sick. The barman of the motel at Glen Armand said that Hanlon had come in around nine the night before and bragged of renting his caravan to an English literary gent. On the strength of this transaction, he put back five double scotches, fell and banged his head on the floor. Expecting him to be sober by morning, they carried him to a room out back. There, in the early hours, a truckie heard him groaning and they found him on the floor again, clutching his abdomen with his shirt torn to ribbons. They called his mate Frank Olson, who drove him down to Alice. He was on the operating talk table by 11. Some talk of a blockage, said the barman sententiously. Usually means one thing. There was a payphone on the bar. Arkady put through a call to the hospital. The nurse on duty said that Hanlon was comfortable and asleep. So what's the matter, I asked. She wouldn't say. 
The bar itself was made up of disused wooden railway sleepers, and above it hung a notice, all liquor must be consumed on the premises. I looked at a picture on the wall. It was an artist's impression in watercolour of the proposed Glen Armand Memorial Dingo Complex. The word memorial referred to the dingo which either ate or did not eat the infant Azaria Chamberlain. The plans called for a fiberglass dingo about 60 feet high with a spiral staircase up its forelegs and a dark red restaurant in the belly. <laughs> Incredible, I said. No, said Arkady. Humorous. The night bus to Darwin drew up outside and the bar filled up with passengers. There were Germans, Japanese, a pink-kneed Englishman and the usual cast of Territorians. They ate pie and ice cream, drank, went out to piss and came back to drink again. The stopover lasted 15 minutes. Then the driver called and they all trooped out, leaving the bar to its core of regulars. At the far end of the room, a fat Lebanese was playing pool with a gaunt, fair-haired young man who had one wall eye and was trying to explain in a stutter how Aboriginal kinship systems were so com fucking plex. At the bar, a big man with a purple birthmark on his neck was methodically swilling scotches through his rotted teeth and talking to the police patrolman whom we had met the day before at Burnt Flat. He had changed into jeans, a gold neck chain and a clean white singlet. Out of uniform, he appeared to have shrunk. His arms were thin and white above the line of his shirt cuffs. His Alsatian lay very still, leashed to the bar stool, eyeing some aboriginals, its ears pricked up and tongue extended. The policeman turned to me. So what'll it be? I hesitated. What are you drinking? Scotch and soda, I said. Thank you. Ice? Ice. So you're right, all right? News gets around. What kind of writing? Books, I said. Published? Yes. Science fiction? No! Ever write a bestseller? Never. I'm thinking of writing a bestseller myself. Good on you. You wouldn't believe some of the stories I hear. I certainly would. Unbelievable, he said in his thin, petulant voice. It's all there. Where? In my head. The great thing's to get it onto paper. I've got a great title. Good. You want me to tell you? If you like. He dropped his jaw and gaped at me. You must be joking, mate. You think I'll give away my title? You might use it. That title's worth money. Then you should hang on to it. A, a title, he said with great feeling, can make or break a book. Think of Ed McBain's Killer's Payoff. Think of Shark City or Eden's Burning. Think of The Day of the Dog. Great titles. The cash value of his title he estimated at 50,000 US dollars. With a title like that, you can make a great movie, even without the book. <laughs> even without the story, I suggested. Could do, he nodded. Titles changed hands for millions, he said, in the United States. Not that he was going to sell off his title to a movie company. The title and the story belong together. Now, he shook his head thoughtfully. I wouldn't want to part them. You shouldn't. Maybe we could collaborate, he said. He visualized an artistic and business partnership. He would provide the title and the story. I would write the book because he, as a policeman, did not have the leisure for writing. Writing takes time, I agreed. Would you be interested? No. He looked disappointed. He was not prepared yet to tell me the title, but to whet my appetite, he proposed to let me in on the plot. The plot of this unbelievable story began with an Aboriginal being flattened by a road train. And... I'd I, I better tell you, he said. He moistened his lips. He had come to a big decision. 
Body bag, he said. <laughs> Body bag. He closed his eyes and smiled. I never told anyone before. Body bag. The bag you put the body in. I told you, the story starts with a dead coon on the highway. You did. You like it, he asked anxiously. No. I mean the title. I know you mean the title. I turned to the man with a purple birthmark, who was sitting on my left. He had been stationed in England during the war, near Leicester. He had fought in France and then married a girl from Leicester. His wife came to live in Australia, but went back with her child to Leicester. He had heard we were surveying sacred sites. Now the best thing to do with a sacred site, he drawled. What? Dynamite. He grinned, raised his glass to the aboriginals. The birthmark oscillated as he drank. One of the aboriginals, a very thin hillbilly type with a frenzy of matted hair, leaned both elbows on the counter and listened. Sacred sites, the man leered. If all what them says was sacred sites, there'd be 300 bloody billion sacred sites in Australia. Not far wrong, mate, calls the thin aboriginal. <laughs> over, on my right, over on my right, I could hear Arkady talking to the policeman. They had both lived in Adelaide, in the suburb of St. Peter's. They had gone to the same school, they'd had the same maths master, but the policeman was five years older. It's a small world, he said. It is, said Arkady. So why do you bother with them? The policeman jerked his thumb at the aboriginals. Because I like them. And I like them, he said. I like them. I like to do what's right by them. But they're different. In what way different? The policeman moistened his lips again and sucked the air between his teeth. Uh, made differently, he said at last. They've got different urinary tracts to the white man. Different waterworks. That's why they can't hold their booze. How do you know? It's been proved, said the policeman. Scientifically. Who by? I don't recall. The fact was, he went on, there should be two different drinking laws, one for whites and one for blacks. You think so, said Arkady. Penalise a, a white man for having better waterworks, said the policeman, his voice lifting in indignation. It's unfair, it's unconstitutional. The Alsatian whined and he patted it on the head. From having different waterworks was an easy step to having different brain matter, grey matter. An Aboriginal brain, he said, was different to that of Caucasians. The frontal lobes were flatter. Arkady narrowed his eyes to a pair of tartar slits. He was now very nettled. I like them, the policeman said. I never said I didn't like them, but they're like children. They've got a childish mentality. What makes you think so? They're incapable of progress. And that's what's wrong with you, land rights people. You're standing in the way of progress. You're helping them destroy white Australia. Let me buy you a drink, I interrupted. No, thanks, the policeman snapped. His work face was working wrathfully. His fingernails, I noted, were bitten to the quick. Arkady waited a moment or two until he'd got control of his temper. And then he began to explain, slowly and reasonably, how the surest way of judging a man's intelligence was his ability to handle words. Many, many original, aboriginals, he said, by our standards, would rank as linguistic geniuses. The difference was one of outlook. The whites were forever changing the world to fit their doubtful vision of the future. The aboriginals put all their mental energies into keeping the world the way it was. In what way was that inferior? The policeman's mouth shot downwards. You're not Australian, he said to Arkady. I bloody am Australian. Now you're not. I can tell you're not Australian. I was born in Australia. That doesn't make you Australia, he taunted. My people have lived in Australia for five generations, so where was your father born? Arkady paused and with quiet dignity answered, My father was born in Russia. Ha, hey, the policeman tightened his lip and turned to the big man. 
What did I tell you, Bert? A pom and a com. <laughs> We've only got time for one, two little bits more, I think. But uh, there's a section of this book which is a sort of commonplace book in which there are various jottings and uh, uh, stories, quotations from other people's th uh, uh, from quotations which I've jotted down at one stage of my travels or another. And uh, most of them have uh, wandering or restlessness as their theme. Uh, I'm just going to read one or two and then a short story about it. And so this is the section which is called From the Notebooks. Our nature lies in movement. Complete calm is death. Pascal, Pensee. A study of the great malady, horror of one's home. Baudelaire, journaux intime. The most convincing analysts of restlessness were often men who, for one reason or another, were immobilized. Pascal by stomach ailments and migraines, Baudelaire by drugs, St. John of the Cross by the bars of his cell. There are French critics who would claim that Proust, the hermit of the cork-lined room, was the greatest of literary voyagers. What is this strange madness? Petrarch asked of his young secretary. What is this mania for sleeping each night in a different bed? What am I doing here? Rambo, writing home from Ethiopia. <laughs> Picos, P-O-E, Brazil. Sleepless night in the Charm Hotel. The sleeping sickness bug is endemic to this region, which has one of the highest infant mortality rates in the world. At breakfast time, the proprietor, instead of serving my eggs, thwacked his fly swat onto my plate and removed a mottled brown insect by the wing. Mata gente, he says gloomily. It kills people. The stucco facade is painted a pale mint green with the words Charm Hotel in bold black letters. A, le a leaking gutter pipe has washed away the letter C so that it now reads... <laughs> Jang, Cameroon. There are two hotels in Jang, the Hotel Windsor, and across the street, the Hotel Anti-Windsor. <laughs> he, he who does not travel does not know the value of men, Moorish proverb. Miami, Florida. On the bus from downtown to the beach, there was a lady in pink. She must have been 80, at least. She had bright pink hair with pink flowers in it, a matching pink dress, pink lips, pink nails, pink handbag, pink earrings, and in her shopping bag there were boxes of pink Kleenex. In the wedges of her clear plastic heels, a pair of goldfish were lazily floating in formaldehyde. I was too intent on the goldfish to notice the midget in horn-rimmed glasses who was standing on the seat beside me. Permit me to ask you, sir, he said in a squeaky voice, which of the human qualities do you value the most? I haven't thought, I said. I used to believe in empathy, he said, but I have recently moved over to compassion. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Permit me to ask you, sir, at which of the professions are you presently engaged? I'm studying to be an archaeologist. You amaze me, sir. I'm in that line of country myself. He was a sewer rat. His friends would lower him with a metal detector into the main sewer beneath the hotels of Miami Beach. There he would prospect for jewelry flushed accidentally down the toilets. It is not, I can assure you, sir, an unrewarding occupation. 
This life is a hospital in which each, each sick man is possessed by a desire to change beds. One would prefer to suffer by the stove. Another believes he would recover if he sat by the window. I think I would be happy in that place I happen not to be, and this question of moving house is the subject of a perpetual dialogue I have with my soul. Baudelaire, anywhere out of this world. Internal burning, wandering fever, the Finnish Kalevala. In The Descent of Man, Darwin notes that in certain birds, the migratory impulse is stronger than the maternal. A mother will abandon her fledglings in the nest rather than miss her appointment for the long journey south. Sydney Harbour. On the ferry back from Manly, a little old lady heard me talking. You're English, aren't you? She said in an English North Country accent. I can tell you're English. I am. So am I. She was wearing thick steel-framed spectacles and a nice felt hat with a wisp of blue net above the brim. Are you visiting Sydney, I asked her. Oh, Lord, love, no, she said. I've lived here since 1946. I came out to live with my son, but a very strange thing happened. By the time the ship got here, he died. Imagine. I'd given up my home in Doncaster, so I thought, well, I might as well stay. So I asked my second son to come out and live with me. So he came out, emigrated. And you know what? No. He died. <laughs> he had a heart attack and died. That's terrible, I said. I had a third son, she, she went on. <laughs> he was my favourite. But he died in the war. Dunkirk, you know. He was very brave. Oh, I had a letter from his officer. Very brave he was. He was on the deck, covered in blazing oil, and he threw himself into the sea. Oh, he was a sheet of living flame. But that's terrible. But it's a lovely day, she said. Isn't it a lovely day? It was a bright, sunny day with high white clouds and a breeze coming in off the ocean. Some yachts were beating out towards the heads and other yachts were running under Spinnaker. The old ferry ran before the whitecaps towards the opera house and the bridge. And it's so lovely out at Manly, she said. I love to go out to Manly with my son before he died. But I haven't been for 20 years. But it's so near, I said. But I haven't been out of the house for 16. I was blind, love. My eyes was covered with cataracts and I couldn't see a thing. The eye surgeon says I was, it was hopeless, so I sat there. Think of it, 16 years in the dark. Then along comes this nice social worker the other week and says, we better get those cataracts looked at. And look at me now. <laughs> I looked through the spectacles at a pair of twinkling, that is the word for them, twinkling blue eyes. They took me to hospital, she said, and they cut out the cataracts, and isn't it lovely? I can see. Yes, I said, it's wonderful. It's my first time out alone, she confided. I didn't tell a soul. I said to myself at breakfast, it's a lovely day. I'll take the bus to Circular Quay and go over on, to, uh, on the ferry to Manly, just like we did in the old days. I had a fish lunch. Oh, it was lovely. She hunched her shoulders mischievously and giggled. How old would you say I was, she asked. I don't know, I said. Let me look at you. I'd say you were 80. No, 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 she laughed. I'm 93, and I can see. <laughs> <laughs> you got to come